there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Wayne Gretzky became the first person to score 50 goals in one season while still just a teenager. And here's a breakaway by Gretzky, all alone, he shoots, he scores! Post-it notes were released, and as the hostage crisis reached ahead in Iran, the U.S. decided to boycott the Summer Olympics in Moscow. And I have notified the Olympic Committee that with Soviet invading forces in Afghanistan, neither the American people nor I will support sending an Olympic team to Moscow. And in Detroit... A young broadcaster named Howard Stern went on the air for the first time. Hello. Howard? Yeah, baby. Um, can I ask you a few questions for my school newspaper? Ask me a few questions for your school newspaper? Yeah. Go ahead, shoot. Why are you different from other DJs? Why am I different from other DJs? Yeah. Because I fart on the air. <laughs> what? I fart on the radio. Amidst these seismic events, here's what people could see in theaters in March of 1980. Hi, everybody. This is Scott Weinberg, and welcome to episode four of 80s All Over, in which... Holy crap! Episode four! We're actually doing this thing, man. God, you scared me. I thought I did something wrong. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, you did something very right. We did four episodes. That's really awesome. Well, we've done three. We're about to do number four, Drew. Uh, and I believe you have one correction for our listeners, Drew. I do. In fact, I'd like to go ahead and just introduce this as a regular feature at the top of the podcast, just in case. And I'd like to call this segment... We pulled a boner. Say oops, upside your head. Say oops, upside your head. Say oops. Because we did indeed. Scott, last week, you pulled a boner. And it's one that I listened to you say it. I 100% agreed with you, and I thought you were correct. Last week, you had mentioned that Irwin Allen was a producer of Meteor, which uh, you believed was a 1980 release as well. Actually, late 79 release and had nothing to do with Irwin Allen. It was simply somebody else doing the Irwin Allen formula very, very aggressively. Whoa. See, there you at least now you know that we're not just reciting off of IMDb. That was completely from my own head. Yep. And if you get on Jeopardy for a $10,000 daily double and said, did Irwin Allen produce Meteor? I would have said yes. yes. So thank you, whoever corrected us. Thank you for that. It's so funny the way you do that in your head, man, when you have lived with something for as many years as we have with some of these films, is you internalize something oh, yeah. and you're convinced you have it right. And then you actually look at it again and you go, Hold, wow, no. I still find it hard to believe that Irwin Allen did not produce Meteor. It was Lou Lord grade and it was a total, oh. it was English production top to bottom. All right. Well, it's also a terrible film, so I wasn't wrong on that count. All right. So anyway, we pulled a boner and I'm sure we'll pull plenty more as we move on with the podcast. So uh, we'll we'll be back for that, I'm sure. Um, in the meantime, let's get right into the list for this month. What do you call James Bond when he's not James Bond? I think you could call him folks. Folks with two folks. F's. 
F F. He's a master strategist. I am telling you how to save the lives of 600 men. Demolitions expert. Get onto the diving section. Tell them I want a wetsuit and a berry gun. And he doesn't need a license to kill. Except for a slight squelch when entering the flesh. They do not make any noise. Roger Moore fights against time and terror as folks. Have I ever let you down? The American title, folks, is uh, the last name of the main character. And in the movie... It is such an annoying, affected thing because the correct spelling of his last name, uh, if done in the correct way, should be lowercase f at the beginning. And they make such a big deal out of it. They make such a big deal out of his hilarious, unusual name. Um, and, of course, folks is played by none other than. As, as a child of the 80s, that late 70s and 80s, is there anything more comforting than the sound of Roger Moore's voice? I love Roger Moore's voice. There's something about Roger Moore's accent and his voice that just takes me back to like 1982. Well, he is the chamomile tea of action stars. That's for sure. The thing that's always blown me away about him as James Bond is you can't do a long shot of Roger Moore running. Um, that That's terrible and horribly painful looking. But it's because he knows how to sell a line in a room. And look, this movie was directed by Andrew V. McLoggin, who is one of these old time Hollywood pros. He made movies like McClintock with John Wayne and Chisholm with John Wayne. Uh, he worked with him repeatedly. And John Wayne was one of those guys when he found a director he liked who basically did things the way he enjoyed doing them. That guy worked a lot. And this was one of those guys. Uh, he made Mitchell, which is infamous for fans of Mystery Science Theater and Joe Don Baker. Try that in a room full of movie geeks. Ask somebody in a loud voice if they've seen Mitchell and, and listen to how many people chuckle in your immediate yep. vicinity. My, 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 my Mitchell. You know what I love about North Sea Hijack, I prefer not to call it folks because I'm a grown man, um, <laughs> is, the, is the cast. That's what this guy did. That's what McLoggin did so well was he loved he loved movie stars in decline. He loved guys who had reached a certain point and they were just tipping over into I'm too old to do this now. And like he made movies with Jimmy Stewart and Dean Martin and Bill Holden and Cliff Robertson and Vince Edwards and. Um, he did a lot of them with the the English guys. He did The Wild Geese, which was Richard Burton, Richard Harris, and Roger Moore. George and Kennedy. Here, and here you've got Roger Moore, Anthony Perkins, and James Mason. And, and Michael Parks. Oh, and I love that Michael Parks is Tony Perkins' henchman in this. Like yeah. He's sidekick. Because Michael Parks is one of our great character actors and a guy who really has enjoyed a resurgence thanks to Quentin Tarantino almost single-handedly. Like, he reminded people that Michael Parks is great. Not almost. <laughs> no, if, I mean, I'm that's not a slight on Michael Parks. I mean... No, no, it's just... It's he great literally, you know, would have faded into obscurity. Anthony Perkins takes over the oil rig, and he's going to blow it up unless they do a certain something, and they go get folks because he is... Like, he's actually shot simulations of how he's going to take this oil rig back specifically. Like, he had it already planned out and that's what these movies used to be like the action film would be the setup you'd have something happen you go get the expert and then the expert goes and takes care of it i th i think one of the reasons die hard was so heavily imitated was it broke that formula and had just a regular person who wasn't brought in to do it but who just had to do it because they were caught in the situation it plays like uh i mean if you watch the trailer it says numerous times he doesn't need a license to kill you know they're really cheeky about who's playing folks with two f's and yeah. what i like about it is that it's less than 100 minutes it has some pretty decent action scenes uh, it's got some actors chewing up the scenery i mean it's a fun little action movie 
I don't know if you just heard my cat come over and, and get in the middle of everything, but it's appropriate because in the movie, Roger Moore's character loves cats, not just hates women, but is a fairly rabid misogynist throughout the entire movie mm-hmm. uh, and seems to really enjoy it. The one thing that they changed, because my dad read any spy book that was published. I remember reading this book and in the book, the prime minister's a man and it's just regular, you know, he gives folks the job and there's no tension or anything between them. This was made right after Margaret Thatcher became prime minister. And that was a huge shakeup in English politics, obviously. So I think it's very intentional that they cast a female prime minister and really tweaked his misogyny all the way up to 11 opposite her. So it's a, it's a direct comment on a, specific moment in British culture wrapped in the middle of this terrorist spy movie that is very old school Hollywood in a lot of ways. This next one is a movie that I, for a little while, considered showing the kids, and then I saw it again, and I don't think I'm going to bother. This is a uh, collaboration between longtime comedy partners Tim Conway and Don Knotts. This film is called The Private Eyes. This is no ordinary murder mystery, and these are no ordinary detectives. Oh, my gosh. This is no ordinary killer. Hurry! All right, hold it right there. Gone, my God, give me here. Gone. Will the murderer be found before the suspects become victims? Tim Conway is the dim-witted Dr. Todd. Ah. And Don Nuss is the inept Inspector Winship. Tripping step by step through the number one who done it. The private eye. I think it's a pretty fun movie for kids. These two guys work together a lot. A lot of television. They were also in both uh, Apple Dumpling Gang movies. They were in uh, a film in 75 called The Prize Fighter. And they seem to have you know, certainly not a Abbott and Costello level of, of chemistry, but Don Knotts being the broadly gawky jittery one and Tim Conway being this slightly more sedate and dry buffoon. As a kid, I really enjoyed this movie. I haven't seen it since I was a kid. They're both legendary comedic actors. So if it's only to appreciate their chemistry together, it might be worth checking out. Just put on Ghost and Mr. Chicken and and skip this. I was shocked by how creaky this thing is. And it's got whiskers on it. Clearly, it is just a lift of bits from a million other places. There's not an original joke in it. Oh, no. It's, it's murder by death. It's young Frankenstein. It's uh, like it goes back to the guy in the gorilla suit creeping around the house with the three stooges. Oh, my God. It, sub little rascals, sub three stooges. It's so painfully made. And I love Don Knotts. There are a few comic performers I love more. I will speak at length to you if invited about why Barney Fife is one of the five great television characters of all time and why Don Knotts and the performance he gave on that show, legendary, next level perfect. Well, The Private Eyes is about two detectives from Scotland Yard. They go to a, uh, a very a fantastic location. The mansion that it's shot in is just amazing. And they're looking into a murder investigation and, and it turns out that the, the mansion may or may not be haunted, but it is certainly populated by a kooky collection of characters. But, you know, as a kid, I liked silly stuff. And, and these guys, I remember them from the reruns of Carol Burnett show and, of course, Three's Company. So I love the guys. 
The seven-year-old me loved it. How about that? Leave it at that. Okay. Seven-year-old you probably did. I think very young me really enjoyed it. I really want to warn people before they go back and pick this one up. If you're looking at it with fresh eyes, it's kind of embarrassing. It's really the the bottom of the barrel for these guys. And I say that as a fan. So um, the next movie we're going to do is a movie called Heartbeat. It's a film by a guy named John Byram, who is probably best known, if he's known at all, as the director of The Razor's Edge, starring Bill Murray. Byram was a guy that kind of, he was working really hard to make it happen at this particular point, starting in the 70s. He was a writer, and he wrote some movies that you would recognize, like Harry and Walter Go to New York, or he wrote Mahogany. He was breaking through, and he was making movies. He made a movie called Inserts, which is an interesting picture the follow-up to that was heartbeat and it was designed to be a sort of love letter to the friendship uh at the heart of the beat generation uh neil Casty, jack kerouac and neil's wife carolyn it is drunk in love with that era and with those people there's an allen ginsburg character in it but they did change the name because allen ginsburg wasn't comfortable with the way they portrayed him and there have been films since that I think have done a better job at maybe nailing down some of the details of the era. But this was one of the first films where they were trying to capture sort of the the beat generation heroes and who they were. And it's got a great cast. That's the thing. It's Nick Nolte, Sissy Spacek, and John Hurd. And the three of them together with Ray Sharkey basically playing Ginsburg, terrific. They're really interesting. They're charismatic. There's a real charm to it. And this is such a different performance for Nick Nolte from North Dallas 40, which we've already talked about. Really dazzling when you look at the two of them side by side. Nolte was really exciting, I, I think, at this point and, and was trying different things. And Spacek is a grown up here. It's so different than her coal miner's daughter performance. Uh, this one you can actually rent on Vudu and find on, uh, I believe, YouTube to rent. And it's worthwhile. If you're interested in these characters or in the historical figures, then... It's definitely worth a look. And if you like the actors, um, it's a really nice picture for all of them. I would like to uh, pick your brain real quick on uh, John Hurd's performance, because I'll tell you, ever since I saw After Hours, which we'll get to many many episodes from now, I've been a huge fan of John Hurd. I had never seen this film and doing my research for the show. I went, well, John Hurd playing Jack Kerouac. That fits. Perfect, right, young, macho charisma because Hurd's a big guy. And I like that, like Nolte, there's a real physicality to him. And especially when he was young, there was this really loose kind of energy about him. They, they're they great together. And you really buy the friendship between the two of them as a friendship between men who were conquering the world at that point. Oh, there you go. If you're a uh, if you're into Jack Kerouac and or the beat generation, you should consider dropping three or four bucks to rent Heartbeat. Yeah, definitely. Now we're moving to something that if you thought Heartbeat was an obscure title, (laughs) I'm surprised this is not a TV movie. As I understand it, it got a very brief theatrical window, but was largely released in most markets only on cable. Okay, and the film we're talking about is called Pray TV. I'm going to tell you, if we're going to bring the word of God out to the world, we got to have more religious variety, more charisma, and I think it's going to be up to you and me, Fletcher, to pull it off. We're going to have to go out there where the people are. We're going to have to find ourselves some heavyweights. We're going to have to find the religious superstars of tomorrow today. Hey, I like that. This is another movie featuring the one, the only, the omnipresent 
Dabney Coleman. Dabney Coleman is the best. Dabney Coleman, one of the best character actors ever. Dabney Coleman is first rate. Uh, our younger listeners might know him best from Boardwalk Empire. Great TV the- I actually have seen because I've been obsessed with these like random, seemingly Saturday Night Live inspired, glorified sketch show movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of these very episodic, almost like just sketch movies, a gong show movie and, you know, the can I do it till I need glasses. It was just a bunch of sketches. And the best example of that would probably be Kentucky Fried Movie. And this is has a narrative in that uh, Dabney Coleman is a preacher who takes over a uh, failing TV station, not unlike the plot we would see several years later in UHF, only without the religious bent. I absolutely agree. It feels very UHF in some ways. Yeah. And then they decide that they're going to put on a whole series of uh, irreverent and potentially offensive religious shows. Picture the writer's room of, okay, you guys are going to do the Muslim gags. You guys are going to do the Jewish gags. You guys are going to make fun of Christians. Uh, you guys are going to, you know, and, and then they all kind of just mash the movie together. And Devo is in it. It's at the top of the Scott, do you know who one of the co-writers was? Not off the top of my head. Nick Castle. Nick Castle of yeah. The Last Starfighter and many collaborations with John Carpenter. and Shape, for God's sake. Yep. I remember I met Nick Castle when I first started working at Dave's. He was one of our customers. And uh, Dave's, for those of you who don't know, was a Laserdisc store in Los Angeles in the early 90s. It's a Laserdisc. Laser discs, they're like these giant coasters that had movies on them. They did uh, not. They did. They had whole movies on them, uh, okay. but only only half on each side. It was crazy. Different time, different time, man. But uh, that store was almost all industry. And so Castle was one of my regular customers and was totally open to talk about things. And I remember at the time, he was just taking out his new script, Hook. And it was about to go out as a spec, and he was very excited, and he was going to direct it. There was a huge story. and how that ended up going from him to the movie. And we'll talk about that when we get to the film at the end of next year. But Nick Castle was a guy, he worked with Carpenter a lot. He uh, obviously, yes, last Starfighter, boy, you could fly very good films, but yeah, uh, pray TV was a very, very early thing for him. And it was before he'd worked with Carpenter yet as a writer. Um, they had worked together just briefly on Halloween. So very exciting. I, I think that's just one of those great weird credits that, you may know a guy's whole career, but there's that one thing, that outlier that really he did that, too. One thing I did find interesting is I recognized the director's name and I did, you know, looked at his his list. And this was uh, the director, Rick Friedberg, his directorial debut and his career. He did a lot of goofy stuff like Leslie Nielsen videos and TV. And but in 1996, he directed Spy Hard with, Le- with Leslie oh. Nielsen, which I consider a sincerely underrated spoof. You would think that a guy like him had been plugging around since the beginning of this. And, of course, Rick Friedberg, his son is the next generation of these movies because his son is Jason Friedberg, who does all the scary movies and date movie and epic movie and all those. So I guess it's a family business starting all the way back. I think it's safe to say that you and I covering Prey TV represents the most coverage this film has ever gotten on a podcast in the history of humanity. So what do we have next? What, what, what do we have next? 
next is a, a movie directed by Art Linson, who is better known as a producer for the most part. Only one other film in his life, and it's also obscure and got held up by music rights. Yeah, The Wildlife, which uh, I'm I'm very excited to talk about that and about him yeah. as a producer over the course of the 80s because, man, did he have his hands on some classics. Yeah, Art Linton is a good producer, maybe not so great a director as his two film uh, filmography shows us. What's the debut of Art Linton that we're discussing right now? It is a movie that came at a very weird time for this movie star. It is Where the Buffalo Roam, in which Bill Murray plays Hunter S. Thompson. Ladies and gentlemen, meet Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. The legendary outlaw journalist. What are you doing? Give me answers. If you what? did. Yeah, okay. okay. Great answers, huh? What? 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 What do you want to know? Where am I? You're at your hotel, man. They broke the mold before he was born. <sighs> Bill Murray is the outrageous, the infamous, the totally glorious Dr. Hunter S. Thompson. You know, I, I hate to advocate drugs or liquor, violence, insanity to anyone. It is the first time somebody tried to wrestle the larger-than-life persona of Hunter Thompson onto the movie screen. If you've read any of the books about Saturday Night Live, if you've read uh, accounts of the years where Bill Murray was there, this is one of those great, weird side stories because Bill vanished into character. He decided he was going to become Hunter S. Thompson, and why wouldn't he? Hung out with him. He got wasted with him. He got into trouble with him. This was right on the heels of Hunter being Hunter Thompson, at the absolute peak of his Hunter Thompsonness, when Fear and Loathing was still less than five years old. These things were still fresh and happening. His reportage was still exciting, and he was still a guy who was very much a major cultural figure. It must have been, for Bill, irresistible to step into that and just play that way. I remember, as you probably did, the same thing. I didn't know who the hell Hunter S. Thompson was, but I sure as shit knew Stripes and Meatballs and Saturday Night Live. And I this one my local store didn't have. So the minute your local video store didn't have a movie in your brain, it instantly became, oh, my God, buried treasure. I got to find it. Probably staying at a friend's. I don't know. I just was at a different area of video store. And, you know, you got, oh, they have this. They don't have that at my store. And where the Buffalo Rome, Bill Murray. I went, oh, we got to get. I think I probably begged his my friend's mom or something. Let's get this. Bill Murray. But do you remember the the photo on the cover? Yeah, it was him with the bat behind him. And he's sitting yeah, in front it's of a creepy cover. Like you look at it and you have no idea what kind of movie that is. But it doesn't. And yeah, look like as, a, as a as a 10 year old. I mean, I didn't see it when it first hit VHS. I probably saw it when I was 12 or 13 and 14. When I sat down with this, I was like, I don't get it, man. <laughs> I don't get it. Now, having revisited it a few years ago, I dig it. It's very episodic. It's it's not a great movie per se because it's clearly inspired by, I think it's like a combination of three or four different essays that he wrote. Yeah. And I'm certainly no Hunter S. Thompson expert. You know a lot more about the era than I do because you're older than me. Uh, <laughs> but I dig it. I, I think it's an interesting relic. Bill Murray is... I don't know if he's playing him accurately, but he's fun. And I think we got to spend about eight minutes talking about how great Peter Boyle is in this movie. I'll start by just saying my problem with the movie is I think it's horribly photographed. I think it is an ugly film. And I think it is borderline sitcom how it looks and how it's staged. I don't think Linson had any feel for how to actually bring it to life. But what 
does work in the film is performance. And I actually like Bill Murray in the role. And I think it's Bill giving it 100%. I think this is Bill Murray as a young, hungry actor grabbing onto this role with both hands and saying, I'm going to make the most of this. I'm going to play this guy who is so eccentric and so larger than life. And I'm going to capture that. And it allows Bill to play a variation on Bill that I like a lot, which is the the bully, the thug. Bill's a little scary in this. And that's what Peter Boyle has. Peter Boyle's scary in this movie. He is a lunatic. It is what is so charming and interesting about Benicio Del Toro's work as well is Benicio plays it as a little bit more destroyed with the sense that he could be dangerous if he ever woke up enough. Where Peter Boyle in this is fucking menacing. He is, and that's Boyle in this era. And and uh, shout out to uh, the late Bruno Kirby, who's also excellent in the movie. It's got really nice work in it. And I, I would never run the film down. I know that Hunter Thompson himself had some real problems with it. And I understand why. I think they do kind of turn him a little bit into a sitcom character. A lot of that is just how it was photographed. But you've got... One of my favorite character actors of the 80s and the 70s, Rene Abergenois, is in this, and he's very okay. good. Love that uh, guy. He's always going to show up, and he's always going to do something interesting. He's always going to bring something to it. it. went up to 100 people and asked, mentioned his name. They'd say, I don't know who that is. And if you showed him a photo, they'd go, oh, the guy from Benson. <laughs> you know, like, I know that's the guy from Star you know, Trek. From somewhere. There's Star Trek fans who only know him from Star Trek. There's... Yeah, certainly people know him. Guess, without things. cheating, I would guess that he's been in 75 films. Now, what's crazy is Tak Fujimoto is the photographer of this. And I, I love Tak Fujimoto, who went on to do unbelievable work. And we will say his name again and praise it repeatedly over the course of the 80s. This is not that movie, though. One of the things I do like about it that I, I wanted to steer people to, if you ever get a chance, uh, pick up the score. Because it's a Neil Young score. And along with Dead Man... Um, this makes a real case for Neil Young having been a underrated force in film when you used him properly. Our next film comes from the Italian horror maestro Dario Argento. And like most of his films, it is borderline incoherent, yet strangely watchable, almost hypnotic, and oddly beautiful to look at. It is called Inferno. I'm a big fan of this one. There is that run of Argento that happened. And I think the peak of it is for me, Suspiria, but this is really beautiful and strange. And as I understand it, it is also as much as it is an Argento film, it's a Mario Bava film. Bava was all over the movie and did a million different things on it and was a huge part of pulling it across the finish line. Argento is a guy who I think really does and always has rely on collaborators. Uh, when he is surrounded by the right people, he has this fertile imagination that kickstarts everything in it and really beautiful things can happen. Uh, this is a good example of that. It's basically about an American college student who stumbles across a coven of witches. It's ostensibly a sequel to Suspiria in that it it deals with the same world. And I think the the larger picture that Argento was trying to build was a world in which there are all these covens of witches everywhere and they're all working to bring back the mother of tears, this mythical figure. And, and each of the movies kind of deals with a, a younger woman somehow coming into contact with the coven, whether it's the school like in Suspiria or whether it's here in Inferno. And I think there's something beautiful about the way these films play as nightmares and how lush and strange and surreal they are. For me, this movie always comes down to 
the underwater ballroom scene. Yes. And you know, you, you're much better. It, it is a surreal. I said incoherent and that's more of a criticism. And I don't think that that's fair. Uh, some people might not be into the way Argento's, uh, the narratives and the, you know, avant-garde nature of his visual style. It is not a traditional American narrative horror movie like we're used to. Uh, one of my favorite things about Inferno, aside from the awesome gore scenes, which, you know, Argento became fairly well known for, pretty shocking violence, creative violence uh, and, and very artistic violence, is the score by Keith Emerson, of all people, from Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Some would say incongruous, some don't like it. Uh, it is very odd for, for an Italian horror film, but it's certainly unique. What a great visual storyteller he is. Uh, and, you know, the sounds and the, you just go along for the ride with with Argento or don't. That's basically your, your option. Yeah. And I think there was a period where he was better at it. I, I think this is that period. One of the touches that has always freaked me out about him, and it makes him seem kind of creepy and off-putting, and yet at the same time, it's it's part of what I like about the films is that always in his films, when you see the murderer's hands, it's yeah. always Argento in every one, so, I think. And that's what a personal weird signature that is. And yeah, very upsetting, especially when he uses his own family in the uh, cast for his films. Uh, then it gets very strange very quickly. Uh, speaking of strange. And if you want to talk about movies that are close to incoherent, our next one is a real oddity. We we did a Jan Michael Vincent film last episode, and we were not terribly kind to it. Uh, Jan, I'm sorry, sir, but it's your turn in the barrel again, this time with The Return. We were chosen, all of us, even him. But he wasn't supposed to kill anyone. Whoever brought us here didn't do it for evil. I'm sure of that. You can't get away from him. Nobody can. Nobody can stop what's meant to be. Not me. Not you. And now my job is over. Not only does it star the very wooden <laughs> Jan Michael Vincent, yeah. but get this, a very young Sybil Shepherd, Martin Landau, Raymond Burr, and the amazing Vincent Chiavelli. Yes. But will remember from as the subway ghost from Ghost. Uh, God bless him. He is missed. I saw this probably, remember UHF channels? late 80s this popped up on like channel 48 here in philly and even then when i would have absorbed any kind of sci-fi movie it's laughable <laughs> okay so uh there's an alien landing um she's uh, sybil shepherd is the scientist jan michael vincent is the cop it's uh, like a small town in the middle of the desert uh when they were kids they had the encounter with the aliens so now they've grown up um something happens and she begins to believe that the aliens are back and there's cows dying and it how would I describe this? It, it's one of those movies where you can tell that all the actors between takes would probably sit around and just shake their heads at each other and go, I know. There are some really interesting tidbits uh, behind this, the camera. The film was written by uh, Ken and Jim Wheat, and they would go on to do uh, 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 a pitch black. Uh, they actually came to Buttonamathon and we had them for like four or five years. They came every year and they were... They were just lovely guys. Um, Pitch Black was the one where they felt like they finally, what they wrote ended up on screen. And, oh, look, they made our movie. Yay. They've done a they, lot of beat movies, so, some that are good, some that are not. A lot of the tropes of the 80s, they are 
part of uh, kind of making them the tropes of the 80s. You know, this is one of those films that absolutely plays right down the middle in terms of the the cop and the scientist. And it's the, you know, the good looking actor and it's the the hot lady scientist and um, their indoor movie uh, that they did. The Ewok movie is they wrote that. You're right. They wrote they wrote the one of only one of them. And uh, they were writers on the fly, too. Like they they oh, knew this stuff right. inside out. They this genre stuff is what they grew up with. So uh, the director um, of The Return, which is, you know, kind of a PG Kind of mostly family-friendly sci-fi adventure. This is from Graydon Clark, who in 77, mm-hmm. Satan's Cheerleaders, and throughout the 80s, he, he did some wonderful schlock and some bad junk, and uh, we'll cover some of those. He did Joysticks, which is a n- classic of the teen sex genre. Uh, he did a movie that I can't wait for us to get to this year called Without Warning, because I searched for it forever. Yeah. When I tell you how long I searched for this movie, you won't believe it. And now I have it on Blu-ray on my shelf. That's yeah, fun. and they also directed a film that I desperately want to revisit someday called Wacko. And we'll get into that in 1982. So Sybil Shepard has written about this when she wrote in her book, and she she went through it very quickly. She talked about how like Raymond Burr was checked out, and she talked a little bit about how rough it was to work with Jan Michael Vincent. I have to tell this story. I'm busting to tell this story. And if he keeps coming up, I'm going to have to tell it because I'll die otherwise. So when you become a tour guide at Universal, they tell you that there are stories that you're allowed to tell on your tour and there are stories you're not allowed to tell on your tour. And there are certain words you're not allowed to say. and There are certain names you're not allowed to say. And there are certain things you have to do if things go south. And one of the examples they gave us when I went through training was there was a tour that was going through the greens department one day where they have all the plants and everything that they move to the various sets. And they were shooting Airwolf that day. So as they're going through the greens department, Jan Michael Vincent was having a rough day with the bottle and had decided he was done working. And they told him that he had to keep working. So when the tram pulled up and the tour guide said, look, everybody, Jan Michael Vincent from Airwolf is here. Jan Michael Vincent walked down so that he was looking down into the tram unzipped his pants and began to pee onto the tourists at which point everybody lost their minds and um they had to not only calm the tourists down give them free hotel rooms do everything they could to make it up to them financially they had ernest borgnine come over take photos with everybody sign autographs do patter with everyone talk for about a half an hour they had to stop production while they hustled jan michael vincent off the set now how likely is it that this story is true a hundred percent this was from the people in the tour department who were there when it happened the way that was handled was then you have to involve the other movie star. You have to make sure that dispatch knows about it. You have to immediately start talking to the guests who are there and you can't let anybody leave until you know that everybody's cool. So, but it's my favorite Jan Michael Vincent story. And clearly on this film, he was having some rough days with the bottle as well. The next film is uh, something that you sent me recently and I watched and I thought, Oh, Whoa, good cast threadbare but promising plot i might be into this yeah and the film is called the baltimore bullet the baltimore bullet and billy joe you better keep your eyes on this pair now that is a work of art work of art my silicone and when nick casey says that you've got aces wired they are real silicone you got a bed sucker the Baltimore Bullet. I'd, l- I'd like to start things off by 
pointing out that James Coburn is a weirdo. Holy cow, is he one weird, weird leading man. I am constantly amazed that people don't just run from James Coburn. He freaks me out. He's nine feet tall and 95% tooth and just weird. And this is certainly one of those performances where his charisma is turned all the way up and it freaks me out, man. The leading lady in this is Ronnie Blakely, who who a lot of people would remember as the drunken mother figure from Nightmare on Elm Street. She kind of escapes unscathed, but James Coburn and Bruce Boxleitner are pool hustlers. The movie wants to clearly wants to be a freewheeling mixture of the hustler and the sting. This movie does not treat women well. There is a a snickering boob addicted mentality to the movie it's really kind of crazy the uh, director looks down every shirt he can possibly look down and um ronnie blakely I, although i never noticed it until this has a really shelly duvall thing going on in this film michael lerner kind of saved the day as he often did michael lerner great character actor who again you'd know him instantly if i showed you a photo he he has a couple of funny moments and and it is nice to see jack halloran from uh, Superman and Superman 2. He played non. But this movie, I, th- I went from, hey, this sounds pr- potentially promising to belabored, leaden, dated, not funny, not charming, very greasy, and beholden to much, much better films. And it's that same thing that I, I have the problem with, with um, uh, where the Buffalo Room, which is that there was this kind of film photography that was going on at the at the beginning of the 80s where it very much looked like television and it looked like specifically late 70s television everything's very flatly lit there's just no visual style whatsoever think that's uh, because of unprepared filmmakers or do you think it's just because they were cutting budgets i think it is they had tv divisions that would uh, work on feature films, but they would work on them very quickly and they would shoot them like TV and they would shoot them uh, in roughly the same way. And I think there was just a house style for a lot of people that they shot in. And it was meant to be this very clean, anonymous TV style that would play well when movies showed up on TV. And I, I think it's really unspeakably ugly. I also think film stocks were changing then. And, you know, whereas I have a huge fondness for the film stocks of the 60s and in particular 60s color i think 60s color is magnificent there's something about it that just gets me late 70s tv style photography is the opposite it just puts me off it is so unpleasant to look at and this is a movie that suffers from that almost all the way through i am not a fan and i'm angry at you for sending it to me and now you said we have one thing more to, to close out with this week we do. We have we have a film to watch uh, to talk about, and we're going to include this movie on two editions of the podcast because it technically came out twice. The movie was meant to be the very first PG movie from Disney, and again, Midnight Madness beat them to theaters, so technically that was the first. Black Hole also had beaten them to theaters. This went into production before any of those, and then was problematic. They couldn't figure it out. They released it in April of 1980 in New York, and after a week, pulled it because it was literally laughed off the screen. And the movie I'm talking about is The Watcher in the Woods. Something is watching. Something unknown. Unseen. The Watcher in the Woods. Hiding in places where only fear dwells. That was my daughter's name. What do you think happened to Karen? I think she's still out there. Something is watching. 
but it no longer stays in hiding. <coughs> Betty Davis, Carol Baker, David McCallum, and Lynn Holly Johnson. What did you see? It's not Karen outside there. It's someone else. The Watcher in the Woods, from Walt Disney Productions. It is not a fairy tale. I saw this one when I was young, probably on VHS or cable. Even as a kid, you know when a, a, a family-friendly horror movie is playing. You, you know, you're not, you're not tricked into thinking you're going to watch something horrifying. And I'm not ashamed to admit that Watcher in the Woods, which, I, again, I probably saw 84, 85, it scared me. Yeah. <laughs> it did creep me out. You know, it's it's not a badly made movie in a lot of ways, but it is a movie that never figured out quite what it was going to do. And and when they released it in, in April of 1980, there's one ending on the film. Uh, if you find the DVD that came out a few years ago, you can see the alternate ending. You can also find it on YouTube and just watch the alternate ending. For that alternate ending, they actually pulled the movie from theaters, reshot, revamped, and cut director John Howe almost completely out of the process. Uh, when they put it back out in October of 1981, that was also laughed off the screen. And Disney realized they had no idea what to do. They still have really never finished this movie. And that is the strangest thing I've ever seen. Just a movie where they, they never quite got their head around how to wrap it up. And so the thing that's out, the thing that exists, eh, that's, that's about as close as we could get it. Watcher in the Woods is basically about... Two young girls and a creepy old lady, right? And psychic phenomenon and something terrible happened in a country house. And what was it? And uh, what was the thing that was in the woods that caused it all to happen? Uh, this is what I first became acquainted with Betty Davis in. Uh, and, and it's always interesting to note what films qualify as like the touchstone for these classic uh, veteran actors. Growing up, when people say Laurence Olivier... They were talking about, you know, Shakespeare. They were talking about brilliant classical acting. I was thinking Laurence Olivier, Clash of the Titans. So when I grew up and, you know, you'd read articles about Betty Davis, you'd be like, oh, yeah, Betty Davis, the old lady from Watcher in the Woods, was very prolific earlier in her career. Yeah, the um, the version that largely exists of this movie is the 1981 cut. Yeah. So the April 1980 cut that, that people saw in New York that really doesn't exist at this point. You can piece together what it would have looked like if you put together all the bonus materials that are out there. But Disney never. Oh, so it was a different. No, it wasn't just the new ending. It was cut. It was cut by almost 15 minutes. Yeah, oh. it's it's significantly shorter. The The version that's on home video is, I think, like 81, 82 minutes. It's short. And then the original was like 100 minutes. Yeah, the director just they did not like his version and they never let him go back to try and find some compromise between the one they wanted and the one that he originally had. It, it, at that point in Disney's history, it was probably inevitable that this was going to be a problematic production because they clearly wanted to get it. They did Black Hole, they did Midnight Madness, and now this, They or, you know, maybe not in that order, but it was clear that they were trying to appeal to 11, 12, 13-year-olds. And when you see, like, Disney goes through periods where it will take chances, but this yeah. was not an era in which the studio took chances. And you could almost see them pulling their hair out saying, well, we made a friendly, friendly horror movie, but it's still a horror movie. And we are still Disney. And you could just see that no matter how much tinkering they did, they were probably just going to keep coming up against that problem. I remember reading in one of the accounts I've read of this thing uh, that one of the original executives who brought this in said this was going to be Disney's The Exorcist. Who would ever want Disney's The Exorcist? That's a crazy thing to decide to chase. Like, 
part of the problem, of course, is that this is after Disney died and the company really didn't have an identity. They didn't know what they were. Even though they had all this clearly well-documented trouble with this production, they were still in production on a much more interesting uh, genre film that would come out in 1981. Something wicked this way comes. And I think it's much closer to the mark. The only other thing I would say is for fans of horror and for fans of horror cinema, uh, when you first see the establishing shots of the uh, house that Mr. Keller lives in in this film, uh, it is a very familiar movie, Haunted House, in one of the great haunted house movies of all time. It's kind of a lovely nod to fans of Robert Wise's The Haunting. So there we go. Uh, that is our wrap up for this week. Man, we had some interesting movies to talk about, but as far as like big hits or highly memorable films, not not really. Not really. And that that is the calm before the storm, my friend, because holy shit. Yeah. Alan Parker turned the kids for the School of the Performing Arts loose on the streets of New York. Maxwell Smart made his jump to the big screen. Yikes. Charlie Brown goes river rafting. And Stanley Kubrick goes head-to-head with Pamela Voorhees to see what the biggest horror film is in May of 1980. If you don't tune in next month, you're not allowed to listen after that. That's my rule. My podcast, we made, I made the rule. Dude, enjoy Fantastic Fest, and uh, I will see you back here after that for May of 1980. Dabney Coleman is first rate. Uh, Could you hear me vaping?